For us, promoting justice for all isn't just a slogan. It's a fundamental part of who we are. Since 1949, Hiscock Legal Aid Society has had thousands of people contribute to our organization's story. Here, you'll meet those who've supported our work, our clients, and have taught us a thing or two along the way. Welcome to the Justice for All podcasts. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Justice for All podcast. I'm Jason Toriano, the Director of Development and Communications at Hiscock Legal Aid Society, and I am thrilled to have my former boss and our former leader on the show today. Former CEO Susan Horn is joining us. Susan, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jason. I'm thrilled to be with you. Uh, Terrific. Well, I am hoping, as I've done with everybody who's joined us on this podcast, to talk a little bit about um, your upbringing, talk to you quite a bit about your time at Hiscock Legal Aid Society, and then we'll wrap up with uh, you sharing a little bit about why Hiscock Legal Aid Society is so important to the Syracuse community. So I've known you for a while. And I did a little bit of research. You're from Brooklyn originally. Indeed, I am. You went to Canarsie High School, is that right? Yes. Okay, <laughs> so I, I, did, I did accurate research. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Brooklyn. Oh, so growing up in Brooklyn, what can I say? Um, the big city, it was fun. It's not the Brooklyn of today, it was a different Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, not as chic as it is today. Yeah. Um, but it was the big city, so it was good. Um, I actually lived on Long Island for seven years. Okay. I went to elementary school in Levittown, Long Island. Um, but then my parents uh, decided they were not suburbanites and moved back to Brooklyn, where we originally came from. And um, so I went to junior high and high school, and then I actually went to Brooklyn College. So I stayed in Brooklyn through college um, and um, I would say during college is when I took more advantage of the city with sure. friends, you know. Um, back in those days when you lived in Brooklyn, the city was Manhattan. Yeah. Um, or uptown. Yeah. Yeah, my parents referred to it as uptown. Okay. If you went downtown, you were downtown Brooklyn. Right. If you went uptown, you were in Manhattan. So, um, so we took advantage of the city that so it was fun. And you had mentioned uh, Brooklyn College. What did you major in as an undergrad? So I started out majoring in actually in education. I was going to be a teacher. Um, and I quickly decided that was not for me. Why? The first student teaching thing I had to do. I said, no, this isn't for me. Um, and actually, so then I, I majored in political science with a minor in history, um, which was really where my heart was. And um, I was thinking I would go on to academia in political science, but instead um, I went back to something I had kind of thought about doing when I was a young kid, which was to be a lawyer. Um, And when I was a young kid, since I'm not so young anymore, back then there weren't many women who were lawyers. Um, But I had a cousin um, 
a man who was going to law school and it fascinated me when I was a little kid. Um, and, and I loved lawyer shows. Um, and lawyers were heroes back then in, in, uh, on TV shows. Um, defense lawyers were not the bad guys back then. They were the good guys. And, um, and I loved that. And then I um, had another cousin, a woman. Um, who went to law school when I was probably in high school. And she became a role model for me. She's now a federal circuit court judge, um, Rosemary Puma. Um, and so um, in college, I decided, hmm, maybe I can do that after all. Um, and um, so I was majoring in political science and I knew myself well enough to know that if I wanted to go to, into academia, I would have to write a PhD, I have to write a dissertation to get a PhD. Um, and I knew myself well enough to know I would still be writing that dissertation today. <laughs> sure. So I knew that law school was a better option where you had to uh, take tests and, and pass them and be done with it. So um, so that's when I decided to go to law school. And you are the second person that I've talked to in two days. I spoke to Peg Cassidy yesterday, and she also was going to be a teacher and took a different route Interesting. Uh, yeah. not very long after her undergraduate degree. So you were inspired, it sounds like, by some of the members of your family to pursue law. You left Brooklyn. Again, if my research is correct, you went to Syracuse University for law school. I did. And... What was that like transitioning from Brooklyn, which is, yeah, I know that you said it was very different then, but it was still part of a very large city coming yes. to Syracuse. So um, I was familiar with Syracuse because um, my aforementioned cousin, Rosemary, um, was living here and I used to come and visit her. So I was familiar with Syracuse and um, Unlike most of my friends who would go to warm places during Christmas break, I would come to Syracuse. And she was involved in politics, so I would come up here and help her on political campaigns. Um, so, you know, I knew Syracuse was comfortable, and truth be told, I applied to a bunch of law schools, um, and I had the choice of two law schools. One was Temple University in, in uh, Philadelphia, and the other was Syracuse. So I thought, well, I'm, you know, I've been living in a big city most of my life. Um, I'll go to Syracuse for a few years, and it'll be a change. And, uh, and then, as my mother always said to me, I forgot to go home. <laughs> um, so I wound up settling here, um, really because of friends and, mm -hmm. and the community here. Did you find when you went to law school, uh, I asked Peg the same question yesterday, I've known a lot of people who are lawyers who enjoy practicing law, but didn't necessarily enjoy law school. Mm -hmm. She said she liked law school. Did mm -hmm. you? Uh, yes. In fact, I did like law school. So I went to law school, um, started in 1971, graduated in 74, and it was a very different time. Um, you know, uh, we talked about changing from uh, majoring in education and thinking I'd be a teacher to, to deciding to go to law school, a lot of that was also inspired by 
what was going on in the world. I was in college in the 60s, the late 60s, and and you didn't have to just look at TV to see lawyers as heroes. Lawyers were at the forefront of social justice movements um, back then, and in many respects still are. And that was very important to me. So I was in college involved with the anti-war movement, got involved with women's rights, um, women's rights movement. And so that's really why I went to law school, was because I saw that as a vehicle for, um, for social justice, for changing the world for the better. Um, and when I got to law school, two weeks after I started law school, um, the Attica Prison Rebellion happened. Um, and that was not far from Syracuse, um, Attica being near your hometown mm-hmm. of Buffalo. Yeah. Um, and um, so I became involved with friends um, who, well, we all became involved in um, working on the uh, defense of the Attica inmates who were charged with various crimes related to the rebellion. And we started Prisoner's Rights Project. And um, also separate from that, um, there were, um, my class at law school was the first class to have more than just a handful of women, right? We had 20 women in my class out of a class of 200. Before us, there were three, four, five women at a time. So we were the first, we were the first class to have kind of a somewhat significant number. They thought it was 10%, huge. 10%, it sounds like. 10%, exactly. Yeah. Today, I think it's more than 50% yeah. of law, law schools are women. Um, so um, all of the women banded together, of course, and we created a women's law caucus and it was just an exciting time. So, um, so I loved law school for the things I got involved with, not so much the actual studies. Right. Um, that was sort of um, a side thing we had to do in order to make it through and do what we wanted to do afterwards. So um, I made good friends that are friends to this day um, and um, got involved in a lot of things that um, I cared about. And what I'm hearing you say is you always, it seems like, knew on some level that you wanted to do this sort of work. I don't hear you saying I wanted to go and work for, you know, a, a, a gas and oil company and be in-house <laughs> counsel. It sounds like you always had it in your heart to do something, which you ultimately did. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I think I saw myself, um, when I first went to law school, um, I saw myself doing civil rights work, women's rights work. Um, and that path got changed for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was uh, the Attica Prison Rebellion, which um, got me involved with prisoners' rights litigation. It got me involved with um, criminal defense work, which I hadn't thought all that much about before. Um, and, um, and then also because I had established this community of people that I really wanted to stay with. Um, 
uh, I wanted to stay in Syracuse. So there weren't a lot of options here for doing civil rights work specifically, right? It was kind of a side kind of thing that you would do. Um, so um, I looked for work in places that did um, work for people who needed help. Um, and um, so yes, I, uh, to, to answer your specific question, it never occurred to me <laughs> to do corporate work um, or anything like that. Um, I always knew I was going to do something that related to social justice. And in 74, you already mentioned you graduated from Syracuse Law. And if, again, I keep saying this, if my research is correct, your first job out of law school is with the Onondaga Neighborhood Legal Services Organization. Correct, which is today Legal Services of Central New York. Tell me about that. Your first job out of law school. Yep. You had worked on these projects while you were in law school. What was that like? Right. Um, oh, it was good. Um, it was um, it was different than what I had been involved with, although I had done some civil work with uh, clinics at the law school. So um, legal services was always focused on civil um, work, not criminal defense. Um, and um, I remember when I first started, my first day, um, one of my good friends from law school started at the same time. We both got jobs at the same time at legal services. And another attorney had just left. And um, they showed us our offices. And on our desks were stacks of 40 cases. Um, each of us got 40. That was half of what the attorney had left when, <laughs> when he left. Um, and they were all different kinds of cases. They were matrimonial cases. They were welfare cases at that time. Legal services, well, still to this day, um, did fair hearings for people who were denied welfare benefits. So we did a lot of that. Uh, we did housing work, you know, landlord-tenant cases, representing tenants who were being evicted. Um, those were the main areas that we worked on, and so it was a variety. Um, and I remember, you know, um, I assume it was the executive director at the time, but I can't say that specifically, when he showed us the office and the stack of files, he said, well, okay, well, get to it. Um, and, you know, you had to just kind of work your way through the files and figure out what to do. Um, wasn't any training that I recall. Um, and, you know, you would work with other more experienced attorneys. There were great um, people there um, who had been there for a number of years and, you know, who you could always go to to ask for help on something. So it was very collegial. Um, it was a good place to work. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it was a great place to start start my career. I got good experience. I was only there for two years, but it was great experience. It sounds like you learned by doing because there was a lot that needed to be done, and it sounded like you either uh, let the cases go or you, you worked on them and you, you learned just, along the way. You just did it. Yeah. Letting them go was not an option. So you, yeah, you, learned, <laughs> you, learned, along, you learned along the way with that. So the... Exactly. You were there for a few years. Mm -hmm. You eventually made your way over to Hiscock Legal Aid Society. 
I did with a foray in between in private practice. Okay. Yes. Let's talk about that. So um, the friend that uh, I started legal services with and I um, went into private practice with another attorney. Um, the, the friend was and is Alan Rosenthal, yeah. and uh, we got together with another attorney uh, by the name of Joe Heath, who today is the counsel for the Onondaga Nation. Uh, he's pretty well known for that. Uh, but Joe had been uh, in law school in Buffalo and was very involved with the Attica defense. Um, and we became friends with him through that, and he decided to move to Syracuse and go into practice with us, and we started what at that time we called the Syracuse Law Collective, okay. a very 70s name, um, otherwise known as Heath, Horn, and Rosenthal. And I did that for a couple of years, um, and um, for various reasons, um, uh, I decided to, um, to move on, and I got a job at Hiscock Legal Aid. Um, Alan and Joe stayed in practice together for many years, um, and uh, were joined by another friend, um, Debbie White, Deborah Weissman, um, and then eventually they all went their own ways, um, all doing very important and great work. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I went to Hiscock Legal Aid, um, which appealed to me because um, it, again, had a variety of different types of work, which included criminal defense. And I was interested in doing criminal defense. And so I applied for a job here and happily was hired. And you applied for a job. You were, you were hired as a staff attorney? I was hired as a staff attorney, yeah. And you obviously found a place that you cared a lot about and that connected with you. So you started as a staff okay. attorney. You were drawn to this because of the criminal defense work. And, and the other work, yes. Yeah. So at that time we did criminal defense, but we also did civil legal services, as Hiscock still does to this day. Right. Um, we did lots of matrimonial cases. Um, at that time, I think we did almost exclusively, if not exclusively, uncontested divorces. So we were kind of known back then as a divorce mill mm -hmm. um, for poor people. Um, and um, so we did that. We did lots of uh, landlord-tenant housing work. Um, and um, eventually we started to do unemployment insurance cases, which still to this day yeah. is done, um, and, and criminal defense. And I, w I would say where my heart was back then was with the criminal defense. That's, that really did draw me. Sure. And it was a obviously a different time, a different sort of organization. All organizations evolve. And I wanted to mm -hmm. know, it was much smaller then when you started. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yes, it was much smaller. We were still on, we were on South Warren Street, 433 South Warren Street. Um, and um, at that time, if I recall correctly, there were, I think, six or seven attorneys that did all of the criminal and civil cases. And we rotated, so everybody did everything. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one week you could be in arraignments and 
for criminal cases, and the next week you could be doing landlord-tenant cases, or you would be doing pretrial conferences. Um, so we had a rotating system, and, and it worked. Um, um, so we had, like I say, I think it was six or seven attorneys doing that, and then we had an, an appeals unit, which we have now a much larger appeals program. I still say we. Um, but um, at that time, I think there were maybe three, two or three attorneys doing the appeals work. Um, and Hiscock Legal Aid at that time was also the administrator of the assigned counsel program. So we had support staff people who administered the assigned counsel system, um, which is private attorneys that take um, assigned criminal cases. Hiscock Legal Aid only did misdemeanor and violation cases in city court. We didn't do any felony work and we didn't do anything outside of the city of Syracuse. And we did that from 1974 until 2004. That's another story. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's what drew me and it's, what, it's where my heart was, really. And you obviously started, as you already said, as a staff attorney, but worked your way up and eventually became CEO, where you were for 27 years, if I am correct? Yes. I have a question as it relates to sort of your career progression, because it really seems to me, having known you for almost 10 years now, but also with what you've shared, that your heart was really getting in, working on these cases, and being the CEO obviously comes with a variety of other responsibilities that would take you away, I would think, in some ways from that work. Mm -hmm. What drew you to the job, and did you miss other parts of practicing law over the years when you were CEO? Yeah, so, um, so I, just to go back, I was at Hiscock Legal Aid from uh, 1978 um, until 1982, so it was for three years, um, and and then Hiscock Legal Aid, as happens periodically in its history, was threatened with extinction, <laughs> um, with defunding by the county, and so a number of us decided we better get out before it goes under, and so I actually went into private practice again with uh, three other women friends, and we started one of the uh, first all-women's law firms. There was one other at the time, a, a smaller firm, two women, uh, that were in practice together. Um, and, um, and we did a general practice. Um, you know, we like to say uh, we represented people that were just above the eligibility line <laughs> for Hiscock Legal Aid or legal services, right? And so, uh, but we did that for five years, and it was a lot of fun. Um, I did some things in that practice that were my favorite things, actually, that I ever did in law practice, um, including representing um, the Griffiths Plowshares um, uh, defendants who were charged with damaging a B-52 bomber at the Griffiths Air Force Base to protest nuclear weapons. 
Um, we represented women at the Seneca Women's Peace Encampment. So we did some overtly um, sort of progressive political cases. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, but because um, none of us were business people and we were really interested in the substance of what we did rather than making money, um, eventually we decided we'd better go back into public practice where somebody actually paid us a salary. So we all did that um, in different places. And that's, um, uh, I remember, um, I, we were in the same building as Hiscock Legal Aid. We were on, on the fifth floor of 351 South Warren Street. And I was in the elevator one day and I met Joanne Sawmiller, who um, had been here at Legal Aid for many, many years, even by then. Um, she was the assistant director, I think, uh, when I came to work at, at Legal Aid. I think that was her title, I'm not really sure. Um, but um, I told her that I was, you know, that we were thinking of ending our practice and she said, we have an opening, come back. Um, and uh, so she got the then executive director to interview me and that's when I started back at Hiscock Legal Aid um, in 1987. And the then director, who was a great guy, and a good, uh, good defense attorney, um, he decided that he hated the administrative work and that he really was a trial attorney. So he went back, he, he had come here from Rochester. He took a job actually in the district attorney's office in Rochester, but he really wanted to be a trial lawyer. Um, that was his thing. So he went back and at that time, I just kind of decided to go for it. I'm, I'm not really, <laughs> I can't really say exactly why I was encouraged by a friend, somebody who was in my life at the time to apply for it. Um, and actually, um, during my period in private practice, Hornheim, Finkelstein and Pizzullo, I had also been involved, my cousin, Rosemary Pooler, ran for Congress. And I was very involved in her campaign. And I had been involved in other campaigns. And so when I came back to Hiscock Legal Aid, um, I said to my predecessor, um, who did not like doing politics at all, he hated it. He really w wanted to do legal work. And so he was focused on that. And I said, you don't like doing that stuff. I know a lot of people involved in politics. I'll do that. So when I was hired back, I was hired back as, I believe my title was senior attorney um, and something with community relations. I was in charge of community relations. And so when he left, it really was kind of a natural progression to then move into becoming the, um, at that time the title was executive attorney because that was a big part of it, was going out in the community, um, speaking to people in, um, you know, an elective office um, to try, you know, Hiscock Legal Aid at that time was not the most popular organization in town. And so that became a real focus was to reach out um, to people in power, to reach out to the community, to have people understand better what Hiscock Legal Aid was about and what we did. So that's why I applied for the job and happily I got it. And 
you got it, and it's a job that you, as we said before, stayed in for 27 years before you retired. Yes. I'd like to know, I'm not going to say best and worst, but the best part of the job and the most challenging part of the job for you. What were they? Um, well, there were a, a, probably a lot of bests, right? So I would say working here um, was, and I guess the fact that I stayed for 27 years is some evidence, this is a great place to work. Um, there were, and I assume are, wonderful people to work with. Um, and we always worked as a team. Um, it was, I think, for the most part, very collaborative work. Um, so it was a great place to work. So that's one thing that I think was best about working at Hiscock Legal Aid. Uh, the other thing is that um, we were in a period where there were a lot of changes going on in the world of legal services and criminal defense. I got involved with you know statewide organizations and we really did a lot of advocacy for additional funding and we were pretty successful at it. Consequently, a lot of growth um, happened at Legal Aid and a lot of changes, um, almost all of which were, I think, positive. You know, we were able to serve a lot more people than we were able to serve. And we were able to serve them in a more in-depth way than we did when I first started at Legal Aid. Uh, you know, I mentioned to you that we were a divorce mill at the time and did it only on contested divorces. Well, that you know, changed a lot over the years. We were the first organization in, this is definitely a best, um, we were the first organization in New York State to receive um, a Federal Violence Against Women Act grant to create a domestic violence project. And we did that actually in collaboration. We were the lead agency, but we did it in collaboration with Legal Services of Central New York and also with Vera House. And we maintained the collaboration, especially with Vera House, um, through probably more than 20 years, and I hope it's still going on. Um, legal Services eventually dropped out of doing that kind of work, but we have done that for years. And so that that's an example of how you know, um, the matrimonial work that we did morphed into something much more in-depth and much more, and much more meaningful, really, you know, helping people who were victims or survivors um, of domestic violence. Um, so that's just one example. Um, I would say those are, those are good bests. And what about the challenge? What was the most challenging part of the role? Well. Um, it's always challenging to run an agency, and as it grows, there's more challenges. Um, you know, there's always the challenge of getting enough money to pay people. And, you know, Hiscock Legal Aid, like every other legal aid and legal services program, um, was and is underfunded, and so um, people are underpaid. And and at the same time overworked. So that was always a difficult challenge and very hard to, um, very hard to balance, you know, trying to do right by your staff, but still serve all of the people you need to serve in the community. 
Um, so that was a big challenge. And then probably the biggest challenge of all was in 2004, when we lost the criminal defense program, um, the county made a decision to uh, give all the criminal defense work to uh, the assigned counsel program. And uh, kind of in exchange for that, um, they gave us the family court program. So we were then charged with providing the mandated representation to uh, parents um, in family court charged with neglect and abuse to people fighting each other over custody, um, um, representing people uh, charged with violating support orders. We had not done any of that up to that moment. And we had to literally turn on a dime and change this agency from at, at least half of that. It, it, the agency was a criminal defense agency to becoming a family defense agency. Um, and, um, and we really had to do it quickly because the county demanded that we do it quickly. We had to reach out to other organizations that did family uh, court representation, get people to come here and train our staff, um, which they did. Um, and. Um, I think we had maybe two months to actually put that program together and start representing multiple people. Um, and we did lose a few people along the way who said, you know, I came here to do criminal defense work, not family, uh, family court work. So that was difficult. Um, but it was also, um, in the end, as difficult as it was and as wrong as I thought that decision was on the part of the county, um, for clients especially, um, in the end, um, I think we created a very um, high quality family court program that does great work. And so, you know, we turned a bad thing into a good thing. And it seems like for anybody who's leading an organization, that is often the mandate is you're not always going to have clear skies and sun shining through, but it's figuring out how to get back to that point again. It sounds like that's what you did. Exactly. With, with this. Yes, with a lot of help. I mean, yeah. you know, it was a team, it was a team effort, not just internally um, uh, with our staff, but with people, you know, in agencies all over the state who said, we'll help, you know, mm -hmm. and came up and helped us, you know, to train people and gave us their forms and, you know, really made it possible. Why, Susan, should people care about the work of the Hiscock Legal Aid Society? People who may not know a whole lot about what we do probably have a little bit better of an idea having listened to this now, but why should they care? Well, I think everyone should care about justice, right? Um, you know, we talk a lot about justice for all, right? Equal justice. Um, but that doesn't really exist. It's an ongoing struggle. And I think sometimes people think that because we represent people who can't afford to hire private attorneys, um, that the work we do only affects poor people. 
But it really doesn't. Um, the issues of justice affect everyone. Uh, domestic violence is a perfect example. Um, it surely does not affect just poor people. Um, it affects everyone. Um, that's an example. But, you know, um, go back to criminal defense. Um, you know, uh, it's our, our system of justice is supposed to work for everyone. And without organizations like the Hiscock Legal Aid Society, people are left on their own, and, uh, um, and justice is not a meaningful word. Um, and our system doesn't work. And I think some of the problems that we see today, politically and in the world, people who resent um, other people, people who feel like other people get benefits but we don't, I think that that's, um, I think that's a function of the lack of justice in, in this country. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the political rhetoric that we've heard for many years um, in this country that demonizes poor people, um, that demonizes people that are charged with crimes, demonizes people who have drug and alcohol problems or mental health problems. I mean, a lot of our clients have always dealt with um, a lot of those problems, not just poverty, but poverty also leads to other issues. And if, if you don't have organizations like Hiscock Legal Aid Society and other legal services and uh, public defender programs, if you don't have those organizations to try to achieve justice for, for those people, then, um, then you face a lot of other issues of crime and drug abuse that gets worse. Um, and um, I think organizations like ours um, help to ameliorate some of those problems. When you help people who are facing eviction because they lost their jobs, right? Um, or you help people who are uh, one example I, I would give of something we did that wasn't necessarily popular, but I think people didn't understand the impact in, uh, on society of it, is, um, is representing um, parents, usually fathers, right, who are charged with um, not paying child support, right? So violating a child support order. And, you know, a lot of people are, you know, they're called deadbeats, right? Deadbeat dads. We had a, a, a program in collaboration with others that was called the Parent Success Initiative that worked specifically to deal with, um, with those fathers who were charged with violating child support, and overwhelmingly, they were people who either had lost their jobs, right, um, had been charged with violating their support orders, and would then have their driver's licenses taken away from them when they're, as a punishment for not paying child support, 
And that was so counterproductive because if you lose your driver's license, you can't get to work. In Onondaga County, it's not easy to get to work if you can't drive. You're not going to hop on the A train. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And um, and so then the problems just escalate, you know. Um, and so one of the things we did, again, a little counterintuitive, we would often go into court and ask for the child support order to be reduced to an, to an amount that the father could actually pay. And so isn't it better for the mother to receive $50 a week to support her children than to have an order of, for $100 a week that he's not going to pay, right? Because he can't afford it. So then he goes into the underground economy and doesn't pay anything because if he just pays $50, he's still going to be charged with violating. So that's an example of something where the work that we did actually helped not just our client, it actually helped the whole family, right? And it helped the community because somebody who's now no longer in the underground community but has an actual job and is paying taxes, right? So that's just one example that I don't even know how that came to my mind of the kind of thing that helps people in general. But what you're describing, I think, is very, very apt. And as we get toward the end of this, you're, you're talking about, you know, somebody who could not pay what was ordered. And it seems to me that nobody or very few people that I know actively choose as you described, to go into the underground, it is often a move of desperation. Exactly. And it seems as though his Cock Legal Aid Society provides some opportunity for people who may have been very desperate or who may be on that path to not necessarily go down that path. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, housing is another example. We know, from just all you have to do is read the newspapers about the poor housing stock in Onondaga County. It's not just in the city. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a countywide problem. And so s- somebody moves into a place that is infested with vermin or has lead paint um, or they lose their heat in the winter or whatever, you know, because it's not being kept up, right? Um, so then that person is evicted by this landlord who isn't taking care of the place in the first place, right? And then they move to another equally bad place. And you have this revolving door where um, landlords aren't required to make repairs, where tenants go from one place to another. And if you have to keep moving, your kids are unstable. They're in a different school. Um, And on and on and on. And again, with our housing program, we tried to intervene in that, to sort of stop that process from happening, to try to get the courts to order landlords to actually make repairs. I will say, unfortunately, it didn't happen that often. Uh, What we more often accomplish is getting the client time to move so that they maybe can find a place that's better than where they were before and not just that revolving door of going into a place equally bad that they're going to be leaving in another two months. So, but I think organizations um, like Hiscock Legal Aid um, make a difference for the whole community. It isn't just for the immediate clients we serve. It really has um, um, an effect that goes beyond the immediate clients. 
I would argue that the whole community is safer when you don't have a large population or even a small population of the community really desperate for basic life right. uh, you know, necessities. Absolutely. My last question for you, what does justice for all mean to you? Well, I guess I kind of answered that question already. Um, it means that people are treated fairly in the system. It means that everyone is treated with dignity and respect and can receive justice regardless of their race, regardless of their uh, economic status, regardless of where they live. Um, we know that our system is fraught with racial disparities. We didn't even discuss that that much, but of course, you know, we saw over the years, you know, disproportionate numbers of people of color being impacted by the criminal justice system, by, um, you know, by the inability to obtain services. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I don't know how else to put it other than uh, that people are feed, treated fairly and are given um, the ability to um, you're not supposed to define something using the word but I keep going back to justice so people can achieve justice for themselves and their families um, and uh, you know feel that they have the same opportunities in this country and in this community that other people do again regardless of race and regardless of economic circumstances and it sounds like much work left to do still Sadly, yes. Yes. Susan Horn, former CEO of the Hiscock Legal Aid Society, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure, and it's nice to be back at the Hiscock Legal Aid Society. Well, you're, wel you're welcome back anytime. I know that, as we end, there's a few people who want to, uh, to see you, so I'll have to take you upstairs so you can say hello to them as well. Great. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about our work, head over to hlalaw.org. See you next time.